Revelation chapter 19. Now, I bet that as you woke up this Christmas morning thinking about passages to meditate on regarding the birth of Christ, Revelation 19 and words about robes dipped in blood was not one of them. Well, good news, I'm not going to get into all of that today. But as uh, Brian and I, the elders, talked earlier this year about potential passages to look at around Christmas time this year, we were, as, as many of you know, considering looking at the trajectory, a trajectory together regarding the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is supreme, and how at Christmas time there is nothing and no one more important to consider than Christ himself. And as we were thinking about various passages to go through and study together in our four-part Advent series, it just seemed so fitting to me and Brian with me to at least take a moment to consider this passage, particularly because of the very last words that Paul just read for us a moment ago. And so the reason that I chose this text for our consideration on Christmas Day is because I think that the most important aspect of our consideration of the baby boy born in Bethlehem is this, where it was all heading. And to be sure, where it was all heading wouldn't happen unless he was born, but he was born with a purpose, and he was heading somewhere. And what I want to consider this morning for just a few minutes, not nearly as long as a normal Sunday sermon, before we head back to our feasts and gifts and other wonderful family Christmas traditions, is the fact that this manger-born child in the little town of Bethlehem was on a trajectory that ends with this text. The picture being painted for us in Revelation that Paul just read for us a moment ago is one of a conquering king. John, who wrote Revelation, is receiving a message of hope from God that he writes down in this book, a message of hope to encourage and exhort and edify believers in the first century. And there was, in their time, a lot of reason to feel hopeless, not hopeful. But God gives his people in the first century a message of hope in this revelation. And at the center of this message, of this book, of this revelation, and by the way, you know, don't you, that the book is not called Revelations. It's not called Revelations. It's called Revelation. Anyway, side note, that one's for free. At the center of this message is Jesus. And if you're not sure about whether or not that's the case, all you have to do is look at the very first verse of this book of Revelation, where it identifies that what John is seeing and then writing down is this, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that's a really important clue right there at the very beginning of this book of what the whole thing is about. And what John then goes on to describe, as some of you might already know, is a lot of really weird crazy and potentially confusing stuff if you don't know how to read it. In fact, it's so weird and crazy that many faithful, godly, biblically-based, knowledgeable believers have wound up on different sides of some various debates on how to interpret this book. And it's okay to do that charitably as long as we're within the bounds of, of actual scriptural truth here. But what no faithful Christian will be able to debate is that at the center of all of this is Jesus. 
And that's why I want to conclude our Advent series with this passage, because it is the end of the biblical argument, you might say, about the supremacy of Christ. It's quite literally the end of the book that's all about him. In this third to last chapter of the final book of the Bible, John details a part of his vision that reveals King Jesus in his glorious splendor at the end of all things. And I just want you to note this final verse, verse 16 again. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name. And it's written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And thus, my call to all of us today, this Christmas day, to worship him. Week one, it was a call to listen to him. Week two, a call to embrace him. Week three, a call to focus on him. And here at the conclusion of our Advent 2022 series, the call to worship him. Because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. But in order to heed that call to worship the Christ revealed in Revelation 19, I think we need to remember some things about Christ. First of all, that he was prophesied to be the eternal king. Now, if you were to open your Bibles up to the historical books of the Old Testament and read through them, you will see, as many of you have before, repeated horrible failures of the Israelite kings. Even the best of the kings, like David, had a horrible failure when he committed adultery and conspired to kill the husband of the woman that he slept with. And there are many more besides David. In fact, if you just read through the Kings and the Chronicles, many times you will see something like, and King so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And sometimes you'll even get a little phrase like, and what so-and-so did was even worse than his father before him. Now, without getting into all of that, basically, once the prophecy of Isaiah arrives on the scene, the king situation in Israel is a disaster. And Isaiah's prophecy calls out the fact that the Jewish kings had utterly failed to live up to their calling to rule and lead God's people in a way that represented God and his justice and righteousness. And then part of Isaiah's message to Israel is that since they've sinned, God's justice will rain down on them in part through the form of an Assyrian invasion. But another part of his message was good news. That the people of God would one day be restored, would one day be redeemed through a new king who would bring peace on earth. And that's what you find at the end of Isaiah, uh, not really at the end of Isaiah 8, towards the beginning of Isaiah 8 and into chapter 9. Why don't you turn there for just a minute? Isaiah 8 and 9, a classic Old Testament passage to read at Christmas time because of its pointing to the prophecy of the Messiah. Let's just read this together and let these words sink into our hearts, starting in Isaiah 8, verse 5. And remember everything I just said about the king situation, God judging his people, and so forth. The Lord said to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. 
And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire to their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching, to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and anguish, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you get all this in Isaiah 8 and 9. And then you fast forward to the time of Jesus' arrival. And it's no wonder that the Israelites were looking for a kingly figure. They grew up hearing the prophecies of Isaiah. They were living under Roman oppression. They longed to be redeemed and restored by an eternal king who would bring peace on earth. Some of them cared more about political preference than spiritual peace, but undoubtedly there were some who truly longed for the peace of God that they knew only he could bring and had promised would bring through his Messiah. And so, first of all, Jesus Christ was prophesied. He was promised. 
to be the eternal king. But at his coming, his kingship wasn't as obvious. Christ's life was marked by servanthood. In Jesus' public ministry, the closest thing we get to kingly fanfare doesn't really come until the final week of his life before being crucified when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Before that, there's nothing really that special about this guy in terms of family lineage, in terms of his vocation, in terms of his birthplace, in terms of the people he hangs around with, in terms of anything at all, unless you were familiar with the miracles that he had done and heard the message that he had preached. I mean, think about one of the quintessential statements of Jesus where he says in Matthew 20 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve. And that line actually inspires one of the verses in a song that we sing sometimes here called the Servant King. And that's what he was, a servant king. Not a domineering, bullying despot, but a servant who did not count his equality with God as something to hold on to, as Brian shared with us last night. Who did not think it beneath him to wash the smelly and dirty feet of his friends. Who was willing to bear the shame and guilt of sin of all of his people so that they might enter into an eternity in a relationship with him. His life was marked by servanthood. And to the Jews at that time, and even to us in our time, that doesn't seem to be very kingly. We're used to the charismatic orations or blustery arrogance of some of our nation's presidents. And the Jews had Solomon and all his glory perhaps in mind, or David or anyone else who had seemed regal and powerful and qualified to reign over them. And then here's Jesus whose dad was a carpenter, which of course there's nothing wrong with, but that's hardly a kingly vocation, whose hometown was regarded more as a backwater hick village than a respectable city, and who doesn't even have a home. Remember, he said he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. He's just this poor nomad. And what's he doing? Is he going around campaigning, as it were, to build a political following? No, he's telling people not to spread the word about him when he does this stuff. Is he waxing eloquent about all the wicked and ungodly ways of Roman society? No, he's calling out the Jews for their failure to follow God's law at its heart. Is he gathering impressive and important people to follow him so that others will be compelled to join his movement? No, hardly. He's hanging out with fishermen, tax collectors, and women of the city. And so you see, Christ's life was marked by sort of subverted expectations when it came to the promised Messiah. Some were looking for political revolution. Some perhaps were expecting sophistication and eloquence and charisma. Some may have even expected a violent, zealot-like plan to overthrow Rome. But what they got was the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, to bring salvation to sin-sick hearts, to bring physical healing to the needy, 
and to redeem from spiritual captivity those whose sins left them destined for punishment for all eternity. However, when we get to the end of the Bible and to our text for today, we see that Christ's return will fulfill all kingly expectations. Now, I'm still not going to take the time to go too far into all the imagery and message of this weird passage in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. But just briefly note, look, look at these verses again as you have them in your, in your vision, whether on your app or in your lap in a, in a Bible, and just look at how he's described. He's riding a white horse, not a donkey. He's characterized by judgment and war. He's crowned. He's bright, he's armed, and he has an army. He's ruling, he's wrathful. And again, if, in case you're wondering whether or not, or who exactly it is that's being talked about here, look at verse 13. The name by which he is called is what? The word of God. You get his name. His name here is the Word of God. And that's actually the first passage that we led with last night in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here he is again. Jesus, the Word of God, is the one being described in these verses. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. Jesus is the king revealed to John in his vision of the end of all things in this message of hope to Christians. The one robed in might, in majesty, and in power. The one who was once a helpless baby, the one who was raised as the son of a poor carpenter, the one who grew up in an unimpressive region and became friends with socially embarrassing people and not at all what you might think a Messiah would look like. But this, this is the full and final fulfillment of everything the prophecies of the Messiah had pointed to. This is where the Bethlehem-born baby boy was heading. And my friends, it is what the people of God today look forward to as well. And so we end our Advent series with a call to worship Christ because he is the king. And I know that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about kings and kingdoms in our society because we live in a democratic republic. We vote in leaders who are just ordinary citizens from all the same walks of life as us, and they represent the citizens, and the citizens essentially are supposed to rule through representation. And so for us, the idea of someone else ruling and reigning over us is quite literally foreign, and for many of us, I suspect, downright uncomfortable. And there are some monarchies in the world today that aren't characterized by absolute rule, while others are. Then there are some monarchs who are good rulers, at least generally, and certainly there are others that aren't. But you know, none of them are ultimately good, because the monarchs who rule on earthly monarchies today are sinners. And they can certainly do some good. And many of them do some good. But they will ultimately come up short at the task of ruling and reigning in the justice and righteousness of God. 
And isn't that what God warned the Israelites about in 1 Samuel when they demanded a king in order to be like the other nations around them? And he essentially said to them through Samuel, this is not going to go the way that you think. And of course, as he always is, he was right. They got what they wanted, but even their first king, Saul, didn't go so well. And his successor, David, started out much better, but then failed spectacularly. And then Solomon seemed at first like maybe he'd be the fulfillment of Israel's hopes, but he failed too. And on and on and on it went until you've got king after king after king doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So at every step along the way, the people of God have their expectations unmet. Every king fails. The kingdom of God, you might say, his people are being ruled by him through kings that he put in place, but it's not going the way it's supposed to go. And so when this man from Nazareth shows up and begins using terms and making statements and claims that point to him being the promised king of the kingdom of God, some people have a really hard time buying it. And of course, some did. Praise God for them and their faith. But Jesus' arrival as the king was a kind of subversion of expectations because he wasn't this political revolutionary. He wasn't a charismatic and impressive individual in human terms. But according to Revelation 19, as it turns out, he always was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was the promised one. He was the one that God sent to bring peace on earth and to rule in his justice and righteousness. And so as the old hymn that we sang last night asks and answers, who is he in yonder stall? It's the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him Lord of all. My friends, today and always, let's worship Christ. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we rejoice this Christmas day to consider these realities of our Christ. We love to consider the baby born in the manger, and we should, and we ought to rejoice at that lowliness that was on full display when he was born and that first Christmas, and we love to commemorate it and to meditate on it and to sing about it and to read about it, but may we also always remember that that baby boy was on his way to being in action King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, help us to take hope in that reality as Christians in our own difficult times, knowing that Jesus is King knowing that he reigns forevermore and that our eternity with him is sealed because of who he is and what he has done for us. I pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together.